Well, come with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking verse this morning at verses 32 through 40. Lord willing, I know that's nine verses. That's a lot. Um, but Lord willing, we'll make our way through that. <clears throat> and as we prepare to hear the word of God, uh, would you bow with me? And I should make note as well. I'm just really thankful for uh, Don Dittrich uh, filling the pulpit one Sunday. Didn't he do a good job? John 17. Uh, so thankful for faithful elders who love the word of God and uh, serve us well by the ministry of the word. And uh, Stephen Yule, uh, dear friend. And um, so I told him, I said, I'm really thankful you moved back to, from Canada to Texas just so you could help pastor our church. And a faithful brother and uh, unfolded the word. And I was blessed uh, by hearing him. And I trust you were as well. I'm thankful for those guys. Now come with me to the throne of God's grace. Would you bow with me? Our Father, as we come to this word, we are coming to it with a variety of pressures and constraints on us. Some in our midst have, even in the last two weeks, walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And while the Boyds and Dixons have buried mothers confident of their salvation in Jesus Christ, rejoicing that they have been loosed from the bonds that have entangled and ensnared them physically, and freed from the entanglement of sin and temptation and the flesh, yet grieving over the physical separation for a time. And might you minister to these families and continue to uphold them and encourage them, give them the hope of Christ. And even as they minister to other family members who don't know Christ, would you give them boldness and clarity in sharing the truth of the life of Jesus Christ? Some are preparing to walk through that valley even today. I think of Jan Bozeman, who's gone very quickly this week to see her mother in Washington, who has been placed on hospice care and it appears has only hours, perhaps a few short days left on this earth. And we pray for Jan that you would give her wisdom as she ministers to her mother and that even now at this late stage that you might open the eyes of her mother to the truth of the gospel and that she might reach out for the only Savior of this world and might find him to be a treasure even in her last hours. And so we uphold her to you. And others, Father, of us this morning don't come with the specter of death hanging over us, but we have other pressures and other weights. We come, some of us, with broken relationships and some of us entangled with temptation some struggling with sin and not winning. And some of us weighted down by pressures at work and pressures financially. It's just a hard world to live in. We have so much and it is still so hard. The gifts of technology and the gifts of a modern culture have not taken away the weightiness of the world. And Father, we need to hear you this morning. We need your comfort. We need your grace. 
And might you minister to us through this word. Might we not only see the faithfulness of other believers in Jesus Christ, might we see your faithfulness. And might we be made steadfast by your, your faithfulness. So make us to stand on the rock of the word of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. They have been called things like the most crushing losses in sports history and the hall of flame out and snatching defeat from the hands of victory. There are sports events that are considered to be among the very most major of failures, gaffes, defeats. For years, ABC on its show, The Wide World of Sports, finished that introduction to the show with the image of a ski jumper falling haphazardly off the end of a jump ramp to the words, the agony of defeat. And yes, I think he bounced something just like that. Every sports fan has their own list of hard defeats, but here are a few. All they needed was one more strike And the Texas Rangers would have won the World Series in 2011. Instead, they gave up a hit that tied the game and in extra innings they lost and then lost the next game to lose the World Series and ne'er again have they been to the World Series. On the last day of the Masters Golf Tournament, 1996, Greg Norman led by six strokes. That's like having... A four-touchdown lead in the fourth quarter with three minutes left. You don't lose that one. Except Greg Norman did. He not only gave up the six strokes, but he lost by five more strokes. An epic failure. Similarly, in 1999, Jean Vandeveld needed only a double bogey, two over par, on the final hole of the 1999 British Open to win. He could have shot a six on a four, on a par four. I think that's what it was. And he shot a seven and lost the tournament. Triple bogey. And perhaps my personal favorite, way back in 1916, poor Cumberland College faced Georgia Tech in a football game and lost by the ignominious score of 222 to nothing. Yikes. Sometimes it just seems like similar things happen, though, in the, sim- in the spiritual realm, doesn't it? We look at our spiritual heroes, and we see people who accomplished great things, and we look at them, And we see not just great things, but we see great flaws. And then we look at others and we see gracious people who suffer. And godly people who don't get what we expect for their reward. And that has certainly seemed to be the case as we have made our way through this chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. And and it's going to be even more that way as we look at these final verses in Hebrews 11. And you've got to ask the question, how, do we under, how are we to understand these people? 
Are they stories of victorious followers of God or are they failed followers of God? And what should we think and what should we believe as we meditate on these verses? These verses are a reminder that God is doing more than just working in the lives of individual people. Abraham's story was about God's faithfulness to a nation, not just about Abraham's faithfulness. And so it was about God's faithfulness with Abel and Noah and Moses and David and every other character in this chapter. Their stories may have ended in apparent failure or apparent victory, but the real meaning of the stories was what they revealed about the faithfulness of God. I've been saying repeatedly throughout this chapter, this, this chapter is about God's faithfulness, not about man's failing faithfulness. And as we conclude this great chapter this morning, we're going to be reminded of this singular truth, that God uses frail people to demonstrate that He is always trustworthy. God is the one that's trustworthy. God is the one that is faithful. God is the one who will see us through. Whether His people win or lose, that's not the goal or the lesson of these stories. The goal is to reveal that God never fails and God is always victorious. And in these final verses, we will see four demonstrations of God's victory. God is always trustworthy. God always wins. And here then are four final demonstrations of his victory. Notice verse 32. The victorious people of faith. The victorious people of faith. And so the writer says... And what more shall I say? Now, sometimes you will be in a conversation with somebody. I'm sure this has happened to you probably even this week. And someone says, oh, I could just go on forever and ever. And what they really mean by that is I don't have another thing to say. But that's not the case with the writer of the Hebrews. It is absolutely true. He means that that there is so much data in the Old Testament that he could not begin to recite all of the stories of those who were faithful in difficult times to the Lord, those who persisted me. He might try to continue the stories, but he says, time will fail me. There's just not enough time. I don't have enough ink. I don't have enough room left on this scroll and manuscript. Time will fail me. And then, ironically, he lists six more names. Didn't you chuckle just a little bit when you saw that? This point in this chapter is not to list all of the people of faith. He's he's come to the place where he can say, we've seen a consistent theme. And the theme is not that people are great. The theme is that God is great. That's his summary. That God is faithful to his people and God will see his people through. And so he lists six people for us that demonstrated the kind of faith that he's already articulated in this chapter in the Lord who was faithful to them. And we could take a sermon or two or three or more on all of these and kind of play it out. But I don't think that's what the writer intends us to do with this. He's just almost like staccato fashion, giving us name after name after name so that we think Oh, yeah, I know that story. I know that story. I know that story. 
And he's reminding us of their faithfulness. Who are the people that he names? He names Gideon. You remember Gideon? His stories in Judges 6 through 9. And it is through his faithful obedience that God used him and 300 others to defeat 135,000 enemy troops. God kept saying, hey, Gideon, you're ready for the battle? And he said, yeah, Lord, I've got all these people. No, 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 Gideon, that's too much. Pare it down. Okay, I'll pare it down to this. No, 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 Gideon, that's too much. Okay, I'll pare it down to this. And finally he gets down to 300 and God says, that's enough to prove that it's not about you. It's about me. And then there was Barak, who along with the prophetess Deborah in Judges 4 and 5, defeated the kingdom of Hatzor under King Jabin. And then there's Samson. You know, there are some, some stories in the Bible you just go, ah, not really sure what to do with this person. And how did that one end up in Hebrews 11? Samson is one of those, right? He's, he's this mixture of godly man and questionable decision-making, and even not just questionable, but at times ungodly decision-making. But at the end of his life, we see a repentant man, and we see God's favor on him. So while he is blind, imprisoned, chained, strung up between two pillars by the Philistines, God grants him grace to destroy over 3,000 Philistines in one event. That's Judges 16. And then there's Jephthah. Jephthah's another one. You just go, ah, not sure about him. But he led the Israelites against the Ammonites, Judges 11 and 12. And David, the greatest king of Israel, and the one to whom the messianic promise is made. From the time we first see David in his battle against Goliath, through his relationship with Saul and Jonathan and his leadership of the nation, we find him as a man who is uniquely set apart by God. So so it is recounted of him in Acts chapter 13 that he was a man after God's heart. Here's a, here's a unique man, a singular man who stands alone with God. And Samuel who obediently anointed first Saul and then David as kings of Israel, though he understood that the nation in seeking a king was being rebellious against the Lord. In fact, Samuel was reticent to give a king to Israel. Israel had said, hey, Samuel, we want a king like everybody else. All the other nations have a king and we want a king. And Samuel says, no, you have a king. And he is in heaven. His name is the Lord God. And you don't need another king. And the Lord told him, yes, I want you to give them a king. We find the account in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have to say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. And however, you should solemnly warn them 
of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He knew this isn't going to go well, and it didn't. But he was faithful to do what the Lord called him to do. And then add to that, verse 32, not just these six, but all the prophets. Add to that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all of the minor prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And all these stood faithful to the Lord. And all these stood faithful to the Lord. If you noted, as we were just quickly going through those names, all of them were faithful to the Lord when they faced opposition. In fact, we think a lot about Isaiah chapter 6, right? This great grand vision of of God to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah sees God lofty in his temple, in his heavenly temple, the train of his robe filling the temple and the smoke and the angels and the glory of God. And then I heard the voice of the Lord, Isaiah 6, 8, saying, Whom will I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And that's where every sermon stops. This grand and glorious vision, Isaiah said, I'll go. And here's how God said his ministry would go. Verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And then I said, how long, O Lord, how long, Lord, will you make my ministry to be desolate so that no one will hear and no one will respond? I'll preach and no one will say, I need salvation. And he said, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate and the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And in the midst of that promise, Isaiah was faithful. He served the Lord. One writer says about all of the people in this chapter and even in this list, he says there was an embarrassment of riches as the writer contemplates the long list of heroes of the faith. We just see it over and over. Life is hard. Life is difficult. There are pressures. There are weights. There's opposition. There's suffering. There's persecution. And God's people can still flourish. In being faithful to a faithful God. What's the writer's point in mentioning all of these names? It is a reminder to a suffering church. About the ability to remain faithful when they suffer. And they were suffering. Remember 1032? Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You you were mocked, you were criticized, you suffered. He'll say in chapter 12, you have not suffered yet to the point of the shedding of blood. And the idea is not just, well, you haven't suffered to the point where they're actually drawing blood yet. But the inference is it's coming. And he reminds them in this verse and in this chapter about all of these people who remain faithful when suffering. 
These people were suffering, the writer, readers of this book were suffering, and they were saying, you know, if we're suffering in this way, we might have gotten something wrong. We, let, let's leave Jesus Christ, and let's go back to the Old Testament law. Let's go back to the Mosaic Covenant, and let's put ourselves under that, and then we won't suffer persecution anymore, and everything will be okay. Well, they would have been contemplating the antithesis of the faithfulness that we see in this chapter. In this chapter... And in these stories, in verse 32, in all of them, there never seemed to be a chance of victory. And the whole point of the recitation of these stories is to make us loosen our grip and our attempt to hold on to self-dependence and self-reliance and trust God. We find that particularly in the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Listen with Listen to what God says to Gideon in chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, Judges 7, 2, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. You got too many to defeat Midian. In what way? For Israel would become boastful saying, My own power has delivered me. And the point in all of these stories is to remove our self-reliance so that we start saying, I can't. I can't do this. And when we get to that point, when we recognize it's not about me, then God can work. And we find that in chapter 8 of Judges, verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 who were with him came to the Jordan. They crossed over weary Yet pursuing, verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Cardor and their armies were with them about 15,000 men, all who were left of the entire army of the sons of the east for the fallen were 120,000. So they did a, 300 people did a cleanup of 15,000 after they'd killed 120. It wasn't the 300, was it? It's not that they were so skilled. The whole point is, God has done it. And the writer is using this section to remind us that God doesn't pay attention to odds makers. God isn't worried about opposition. When God is on our side, we always win. Caveat, even if we die, we win. If we are the Lord's. And the writer uses these names also. Not just to remind us. That it's all about him and his power and his authority. But to remind us that he uses flawed people. Even people with significant flaws. And all of these. Had significant weaknesses. And significant spiritual failures. Said John Calvin. In every saint there is always to be found. Something reprehensible. Nevertheless, although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. God still approves of people who are flawed when they are in Him and New Testament side as they look back at Christ and lean on Christ for their righteousness. God uses flawed people to accomplish His purposes. Brothers and sisters, there is no circumstance 
And there are no people that cannot be overwhelmed by God and used by God. And brothers and sisters, that should be a massive encouragement. It's not about me. It's not about my authority. It's not about my power. It's not about my ability. And that's true not just of Terry. That's true of every one of us. It's not about your ability as a dad. It's not about your ability as a mom. It's not about your ability as an evangelist in a, in a pagan workplace. It's about God who has you there as a flawed person working in difficult circumstances to demonstrate that he can be victor. So we see, first of all, verse 32, the victorious people of faith. Let us also notice verses 33 to 35, the victorious accomplishments of faith. God uses weak people to accomplish his purposes. And what did what did these six and what did the ones who preceded them in this chapter and what did others like them in the scriptures accomplish? Well, he tells us in verses 33 to 35, they conquered kingdoms, that is, they overcame military opposition. And that's true of, of all of the names that preceded in verse 32 with the exception of Samuel. All of them. They overcame tremendous odds, if you will, to conquer kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. That could be personal acts of righteousness. I think actually what he's talking about is not that they were personally transformed righteously, and the, although that was part of it but simply that they practiced righteousness in the duties that God had given them. So when they were kings or they were prophets or whatever role they were serving for God, they practiced righteousness. They did the right things in carrying out their duties. They honored the Lord. And they upheld His truth. He says they also obtained promises. They didn't receive necessarily everything that God had promised. We'll see that in just a moment. But God fulfilled a variety of temporal promises to provide for them. Listen to, listen to what Joshua says as he gets towards the end of his life in ministry and he recounts the, the nation going in to take the promised land. Joshua chapter 21, he says this in verses 43 and 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it, and they lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed all came to pass. So God brought the nation in and the bringing of the nation is to demonstrate God will take care of you. When He's made a promise, He'll keep you. And that wasn't just true of Joshua as they entered the land, but it's true all throughout this chapter and all throughout the Old Testament. They shut the mouths of lions. Who's that a reference to? Daniel. Actually, it's a reference to God shutting the lions in Daniel's den. But it also could be a reference to David who killed the lion and Benaiah or maybe even Samson. They quenched the power of fire. Likely a reference to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, even though they weren't listed in the lists above. Says John Owen, the Puritan, about them. The faith of these men was considerable in that they were not assured 
that they would be miraculously delivered and all they could do was commit themselves to God's sovereignty. We don't know what God's going to do. We might die. We might live. All we know is we cannot bow the knee to a false God. And so they went into the fire. Others, the writer says, escaped the edge of the sword. Perhaps he's referring to Elijah escaping Jezebel. Perhaps he's referring to Elisha escaping Jehoram. There are a number of possibilities, but some escaped the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. This could be a statement for all of these people. It's a reminder that God uses weak things to accomplish his purposes, to demonstrate that he is the one who is acting, that he is the one who is controlled. So the Apostle Paul talks about this in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says in verse 27, The Lord has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and the Lord has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before God. It's always about God. It's always about demonstrating that it's God's strength, it's God's power, it's God's authority. So from weakness, they were made strong to demonstrate that it's God's ability to use weak things to accomplish His purposes. They became mighty in war. This is similar to that phrase, they conquered kingdoms. They they accomplished things uh, that was not in it in their own ability to accomplish in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Think about Joshua fighting against Ai in Joshua chapter 8. They're running away in a kind of an attempt to fool the people of Ai. And uh, meanwhile, somebody's going in and they burn the city of Ai. The, the soldiers of Ai see their city burning. And so they turn and run. And then Joshua swarms them and defeats the city of Ai. Women receive back their dead. The great enemy. Of all the enemies that Israel faced, of all the enemies that you and I face, the great enemy is death. And God used several instances of resuscitation to demonstrate his ultimate victory over the ultimate enemy. Death doesn't win. And so as you read this, you think about the widow of Zarephath, whose son was brought back to life under Elijah, and the Shunammite son who was brought back to life under Elisha. Perhaps the readers also thought about Jesus resuscitating the widow of Nain's son. Perhaps they thought about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Perhaps they thought about the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's a demonstration that God wins. Death is an enemy. But it's the final means by which God accomplishes his redemption for his people. Death doesn't win. God wins. And so we have in these verses 33, 34, in the first part of verse 35, 10 examples of living faith, victorious accomplishments in circumstances that looked impossible. There's just no way out. And it's a reminder that with God, as Jesus says in Matthew 19, with God, nothing is impossible. What's notable in this section, though, is not what all of these did. What's notable is their character. Did you notice the phrase that I skipped over? Verse 33, who by faith. 
Everything they did was predicated on their trust in God and not their trust in themselves. They lived faithfully to the Lord and they did not give up following God when they faced hardship. Their lives were not easy. Don't think, oh, they had it made. It was simple. There were no burdens. There were no weights. There were no struggles. There were struggles. And they trusted the one who would see them through those struggles, God himself. Says Michael Kruger, like all these people, you and I need divine help. It will never work to try to obey in our own strength. But with the help of the Spirit, obedience is the inevitable result of God's grace working through us by faith. Who knows what He may accomplish through us? God's victories in all these circumstances give us our priority. Be faithful. And who knows what God will do. I started saying that little phrase. I don't even know where I picked it up. If I created it. If I stole it from somebody. A long time ago. Who knows what God will do. And a lot of times. We get the anticipated answer. And it doesn't look like God has done anything. The person gets sicker and sicker and sicker and dies. The finances don't come in the way you expect. The job doesn't get any better. The boss still stays hostile. The relationship isn't mended. But you know what? God hasn't called me to change those things myself. He's just called me to be faithful to do what He's called me to do in that instance. And trust Him. And sometimes we look and we say, who knows what God will do? And he saves someone at the very last minute before death. And he provides in an unexpected way. And someone is repentant and a relationship is restored. You ever seen that happen? I was talking to somebody recently. And I say, you, you wouldn't believe it. The relationship is fixed. God has acted. Well, that's, the, that's the victorious accomplishments of faith. Again, it's not about us. It's about the one who is faithful when we are obedient to him. Notice as well the victorious sufferings of faith. In the middle of verse 33, or verse 35 rather, the writer makes a transition and others. And he moves from the blessings that were received by those who were in difficult circumstances to the difficulties that were incurred by those who were faithful. And the emphasis is on people who were faithful who did not experience lives of ease and did not experience resolution or grace or removal of the problem. 
One commentator calls what follows this transition as victorious sufferings. There is suffering, but there is a kind of victory for those who suffered, which he's going to affirm for us in verses 39 and 40. He's telling us there is victory in suffering. Not all suffering is loss. And we tend to say, Everything has just gone wrong. All the, the wheels have fallen off the wagon. There is no hope for this circumstance. It's only suffering. It's all bad. And the writer's saying, no, no, no. You've got to think about it in a different way. What kind of people were faithful when they suffered? Oh, the kind of people who were tortured and did not accept their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were tortured. That word tortured is actually used of a musical instrument. Katie, it's, a, it's like that drum that you've got over here. And it's the skin that's being pulled tight over that drum and stretched as taut as it could be so that when you hit it, it makes a resonant sound. These people were stretched so that they could be beat and thrashed with the greatest of inflict, infliction of hurt and harm. You know that old saying, beaten like a drum? That's what this is talking about. Immense suffering. And the inference is that they could have been released. They were tortured and they didn't accept their release. In other words, someone was telling them, if you just bow the knee, to Baal, to Nebuchadnezzar, then you can be released. And they said, no, we'll take our suffering instead. Why? Because they're looking for a better resurrection. They're looking for a better life. They're looking at the end goal. They're looking at the reward that could come from God. They, they believe Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is all that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. They're saying, we'll take the suffering because we know we're going to get reward. And so they endured believing. They kept their eyes on eternity and not on this world. Others, he says, experienced mockings. And scourgings, mockings are the verbal insults. Scourgings are the physical beatings that come with the mocking insults. You think about Jesus on the cross, the physical suffering and the mocking that he endured. That's the kind of thing that's being talked about here. And what's the extent of that? Not just mockings and scourgings. Yes, verse 36, but also chains and imprisonment. That's the end of the mockings and scourgings. You're thrown in jail and you're forgotten about there. You might think about Joseph. And all of the injustice that he suffered while imprisoned. And not just suffering. But notice verse 37. They were stoned. Put to death. They were sawn in two. We are told that this was the fate of Isaiah the prophet. That while alive. He was cut in two. And put to death in that way. They were tempted. Some some of your texts. I think maybe the ESV doesn't have. That little phrase, they were tempted. There's some question about whether or not that was actually written. I think it was in the original writing. But 
the debate is, well, it just doesn't seem like, you know, stone, sawn into, tempted. Those things don't fit together. Except you ever felt the weight of temptation? You ever felt the burden of temptation pulling you internally towards something? And what a conflict that is within you? And the weight and the sorrow that as you follow that path of temptation? Or have you ever had external pressure put on you that says, if you don't, then we will? And you must abdicate, you must give up your faith, you must reject Christ. And if you don't, then... There's tremendous suffering that comes in those ways. I think that's what he's talking about. Because they were some of them, he says as well, were put to death with the sword. Perhaps that's a reference to defeat in war. Perhaps it's a reference to people like Uriah the prophet from Jeremiah 26 and being put to death for their stand for God. Perhaps it's a reference to martyrdom in general. The point is simply people died because they followed God. They're in sheepskins. It's not just a reference to prophets. A lot of the prophets we know wore sheepskins. The point isn't, I'm a prophet, that's my, that's my suit. The point is, I'm a prophet, I have nothing. And so that's what they wore. They were destitute. They had nothing else. They, they, they lacked the basic necessities. It is a sign of their affliction. And that's what he refers to next. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were ill-treated. They had that stuff. That was their attire because that's all they had and no one cared. To such an extent, verse 38, that they wandered in deserts and mountains and caves in holes in the ground. The only place that they could afford to live was a hole in the ground. It's not just a reference to the poverty of their existence, the fact that they're living in uninhabitable places, but it points to the fact that they were absolutely alone. They were marginalized, they were hated, they were persecuted, created by God for a relationship. They had no relationship. They were alone. And you read Isaiah, the end of Isaiah chapter 6, and isn't that, the, isn't that the tenor that you get from that? God says, I'm going to get you to go preach, and you'll be around people, but you will be absolutely isolated. You'll be the only one saying this. Everyone will reject you. That, that list of sufferings is sobering, isn't it? You read that, and you just shudder. And remember, Hebrews 11 is the writer's attempt to encourage people to stay faithful. And don't you just, isn't running around in the back of your mind this idea, how is that list encouraging them to stay faithful? Because that's a pretty discouraging list. He is using it to affirm that whatever they're suffering, they're not alone. They're not the first. Their situation is not extreme. It's not unusual. Ostracism and hatred from the world are the norm for the follower of God and Christ. And if this was a struggle for the early church, the first generation after Jesus left, 
It just seems like it has multiplied exponentially today, at least in America. We, we, we tend to think everybody should love me. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. They should love me. No, Jesus says, if you're going to follow after me, they should hate you. Let's not have as our goal easy lives, suffering free lives. It's not the goal. The goal is a faithful life when we're suffering. His other point with helping them think about others who have lived in difficult circumstances is that even when we suffer injustice and harm, we can accept it knowing that whatever we lose on earth, we cannot lose heaven if we are in Christ. They can't take away Christ. If He is yours and you are His, there is no safer place in the world for you to be. He's got you in His hand. John 10, and no one can pluck you out. Things may be swirling around you that are difficult, but you're absolutely safe in the harbor of Christ. Again, says Michael Kruger, there's a sad trend in evangelicalism today of teachers claiming that if you follow God, it will make your life better in earthly ways. Of course it is better to follow Jesus, but that does not mean bigger bank accounts or more popularity. This is not your best life now. You could be hated. You could be persecuted. You could be put in jail. And if those things are true, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us there is still victory. God still wins. It's not gone wrong. So we've seen the victorious people of faith. We've seen victorious accomplishments of faith, victorious sufferings of faith. See now, verses 39, the victorious hope of faith. Where is the victory? The victory is in the hope that God has granted to us. And so now the writer summarizes, and all these. I think he's referring back to everybody in verses 32 to verse 38. But he probably is thinking even beyond that to everyone that he's listed in this chapter and likely even everyone in the Old Testament that lived a similar life of faith. The summary he makes is true of all Old Testament believers. This is the way it was for everyone in the Old Testament who followed after God. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't get, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, they didn't get the fullness of the promise, but they did get approval. They gained approval through their faith. That is, they had faith in God, and God testified about them. You're mine. Where do I get that? I get that from verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not, things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. Same word is here in verse 39. The essence of faith is I live for the approval of another. 
Now, I want the approval of my kids. I I love to have the approval of my wife. I like the approval of y'all. But that's not where any of us should live. The approval we're seeking is the approval of God who says, well done, good and faithful servant. You're mine. You belong to me and your life testifies that you're mine. And, and that was the very thing that Abel did. Verse 4, he obtained the testimony that was righteous. Who testified about Abel? God did. Verse 5, and Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. Why? Because he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Who testified to that? God did. That's the focus. That's the direction. I want the approval of God. And some of us need to twist that around. Because we've spent all of our lives saying, I want the approval of the world. I want the approval of man. I want the approval of friends. I want the approval of family. I want to be recognized here. And God says, no, you need to be recognized there. That's where you put your focus. And that's where they lived. And they got some promises. Verse 33 tells us that. Some of the promises came. They obtained promises. But they did not receive the final promise. They didn't receive the great promise. They didn't receive the full gift. What's the full gift? God promised, starting with Abraham, there's coming a Messiah and a kingdom for the Messiah. And all of these in the Old Testament kept looking and kept waiting and kept watching. And the kingdom didn't come and the Messiah didn't come. And they remained faithful. They kept looking. Why? Verse 40. Because God provided something better for us. God withheld the fulfillment of the promise to them so that He could fold us into the promise. So that we could be part of it. God had something better in store for them. And that word better becomes a key word all all throughout this book of Hebrews. They would receive, Hebrews tells us, a better hope and a better covenant and better promises and a better high priest and better access to God and a better sacrifice and a better possession and a better resurrection. And all of that comes through the one who is better, Jesus Christ. God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That word perfect is the word complete, finished, mature. How can they be made perfect and mature through the gift that comes to us? They were looking ahead to the gift that we look back to. They looked ahead to Jesus Christ. We look back to Jesus Christ Because Jesus Christ came to fold us into the promise, then they had to wait until that happened. They looked forward. We look back. All of us are dependent on Christ for our salvation. And even when we look back, we see clearly the provision of Christ who has been provided for us Just like the Old Testament saints, we say, you know what? I don't have everything yet either. 
I have Christ, but I don't have the end of the promises of Christ yet. I'm still waiting and still looking. So one writer says, even New Testament saints should expect hardships and persecutions until Christ returns. Indeed, Paul suffered for Christ and forced him to look to the future. If you follow God, you will not get it all now. In Christ, you do get it all, but you get it on the final day when Christ looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We haven't received everything yet, but God will fulfill his promise. Don't despair. On October 16, 1555, Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester, were burned at their stake for their faith in Jesus Christ. You can still go to London and find the very spot. There's a marker on the spot in which they were burned. Theologian J.C. Ryle said that, quote, Next to Thomas Cranmer, there can be little doubt that no two men did so much to bring about the establishment of the principles of the Reformation of England. And they were among the very first martyrs under Queen Mary. She killed 255 pastors, bishops, for their faith in Jesus Christ, all around communion. They held the simple belief that the body and blood of Jesus Christ were not literally in the elements, and they died for that. Ryle recounts their martyrdom. On the day of their martyrdom, they were brought separately, he writes, to the place of execution, which was at the end of Broad Street, Oxford, close to Balliol College. Ridley arrived on the ground first and seeing Latimer come afterwards, ran to him and kissed him, saying, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else endure in, or else strengthen us to abide it. And then they prayed earnestly and talked with one another, though no one could hear what they said. Ridley's last words before the fire was lighted were these. Heavenly Father, I give thee most hearty thanks that thou hast called me to a profession of thee even unto death. I beseech thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver the same from all her enemies. Latimer's last words, Ryle writes, were like the blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust never shall be put out. When the flames began to rise, Ridley crowd out, cried out with a loud voice in Latin, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. And Latimer cried out as vehemently on the other side of the stake, Father of heaven, receive my soul. What do you say? Ridley and Latimer? Did they lose? Did God fail? Were they failures? Yes, in this world, they lost their lives. 
but in the tradition of flawed people that we have seen in Hebrews chapter 11, they maintained the faith in a perfect, unflawed God of glory. He kept them to the end. He kept them in the end. And He kept them into glory. Brothers and sisters, as we struggle with the difficulties and trials and sufferings and persecutions of this world, let us similarly maintain our confidence in God who will not fail us But He will be faithful to see us to the end. That's victorious faith. Believing, trusting, relying on God to be ultimately victorious even, especially when life is harsh. Our Father, we thank You for the reminders of Your faithfulness, Your goodness, Your grace, Your glory, Your victory. You haven't lost, you didn't lose, didn't lose, you're not losing today, you will not lose in the future, you are victor. There are sufferings on this world in which we will lose some things, but we thank you that when we are in Christ, we never lose him and we are never lost by him. Would you keep us faithful to you? All kinds of different particular callings in this room to which we are called to be faithful. Would you enable us to be faithful to that particular calling in which you have placed us? And then corporately, as followers of Jesus Christ, would you keep us to be faithful to him no matter what we suffer here? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.